Welcome back. We've missed you here at Rose Library. I'm your host, Lolita Rowe, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose, Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library. And you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversations. Are you afraid of vampires? If so, grab your garlic and a wooden steak as we start Season 2 with an exploration of the Rose Library's Bram Stoker Collection. If you're not familiar with the name Stoker, you probably know him by his most famous book, Dracula. While just one of many books he penned in his lifetime, it's certainly the one he's remembered for. To celebrate the Stoker Collection opening to the public, we asked Beth Shoemaker, our rare book librarian, and the person responsible for cataloging a large part of the collection to talk with Eddie Van Mueller, scholar, filmmaker, co-editor of Frankenstein, how a monster became an icon, and a big fan of Stoker and Dracula, to talk about the importance of the collection and why the specter of Dracula is so enduring. Before we unleash Dracula, let me tell you about what's in store for season two of not only this series, but Behind the Archives and Atlanta Intersections. We'll drop the first episode of Behind the Archives and Atlanta Intersections in November. And then you can expect a new episode from all three series each month through June of 2022. We'll be featuring moon landings, punk rock, LGBTQ life in Atlanta, baseball, and a trip down the yellow brick road. I hope you get chills and thrills from today's episode. Fearsome being the screen has ever seen. Tens of dozens of victims rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Uh, the most terrifying lover the world has ever known. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Dead and loving it. Dracula. Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker Dracula. 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 Welcome to Eddie Van Muller, who's joining me in a conversation today about Dracula, horror, Bram Stoker, and all things vampire. Thank you so much. The um, context for our conversation today is that Rose Library and Emery have recently acquired a huge collection of Bram Stoker materials from Dublin collector John Moore. The collection includes early works on vampires, inscribed copies of many Stoker works, um, things he gave to friends and colleagues, editions of his works up through modern paperbacks, and there are comics, graphic novels, um, and other adaptations of his most famous work, of course, Dracula. The archival collection also includes letters for, to and from Stoker um, and the Stoker family, because um, Stoker had some brothers, playbills, movie posters, and many more items. Although this collection was in the work for, for some time, it actually was purchased and arrived at Emory during the pandemic. Uh, so uh, this was before the Emory campus was open and when we we're operating only on a skeleton crew um, working in rows. So it's, it's had his, its ups and downs, but it's here now. And I'm um, looking forward to a conversation with Eddie. So Eddie, why don't you go ahead and just talk about who you are and what you do? So um, I'm really excited to be here. I'm, I am a, a big fan of Bram Stoker's novel and the many pop culture iterations that it has enjoyed during its long, long afterlife. For uh, many years, I was a professor of film and media studies at uh, Emory University, and before that I was at uh, Georgia State University. And I am an occasional filmmaker, uh, an entertainment historian, um, an unrepentant fanboy. In 2018, I edited an anthology with one of my former Emory colleagues, Dr. Sidney Perkowitz. We did an anthology on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein um, called How a, a Monster Became an Icon. So monsters are kind of my wheelhouse, 
and uh, in particular those iconic monsters of the 19th century who have gone on to really shape the culture of the 20th and the 21st. As you briefly mentioned, 19th century fiction was really um, interested in monsters. We have Frankenstein in 1818, The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1831, Jekyll and Hyde in 86, and of course Dracula in 1897. So what do you think was so fertile about the 19th century that monsters were so very popular in the imagination and in literature? I I think that the 19th century doesn't really end in 1900. And I think in a lot of ways, we are still in the long hangover from the, the 19th century. And I think that's part of why some of these cultural products of that period remain so salient today. You know, one of the things that happened over the course of the 1800s is a, a, a tremendous explosion in, uh, in England especially – But really, throughout Western Europe and by the end of the 1800s in America, too, we had this tremendous explosion in literacy. And we had so many more people reading and so many more books being published to to the point where, you know, if you're looking at, at Stoker's Dracula, which appears in 1897, his readership is fundamentally different than the readership of Mary Shelley's novel, in 1818. So for one thing, um, we have a much broader reading public and we have a, a, a reading public that has seen rapid and even traumatic transformations of their lives. If you think about the fact that at the beginning of the 1800s, we not only have a lot fewer people reading, but we are traveling by stagecoaches and we are still dealing with an understanding of science that is essentially dating to the Enlightenment and we have very few cities of any great size. By the end of the 1800s, it's a different planet and we have trains and we have telegraphy and we have telephony and we have motion pictures and we have these vast cities with surging immigrant populations. And and there is a, a way in which monsters speak well to cultures that are anxious, to cultures that have have concerns. And and if we look at the monsters, the great monsters of, of 19th century fiction, many of them embody in various ways the kinds of whiplash that people are experiencing from living through this time of incredible dynamism and change. Whether that's, you know, Victor Frankenstein's creature, which is the product of science gone mad uh, in an age when science is first going to become known, really, as science as opposed to natural philosophy. And you get Dracula, which in some ways, Dracula is very much a story about the tension between the present and the past and the old and the new and the West versus the East. That tension, while it may have existed in other forms for a long time, that's now part of the lived experience of millions of urbanites around the world who are going to be walking around cities like New York or London or Paris, and hearing languages spoken and seeing the faces of people that that once upon a time they would never have seen. So I, I think that the 19th century was a monstrous century. It was a century of shocks and surprises and anxieties, and that naturally leads us to think about monsters. You mentioned the sort of long tail of the 19th century. Um, Dracula has never been out of print since it was first published in 1897. We still have a fascination, clearly, with vampires today, even um, in pop, you know, TV culture with things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and True Blood, um, to name just a couple. 
Um, but there's also comic adaptations and and graphic novels and this this idea of Dracula specifically, even more to a greater extent than I would say Frankenstein or some of the other 19th century monsters have really um, had its own life in the 20th and 21st century. So could you talk more about that long tail and why we're still so very fascinated with with vampires um, in the in this way that that Stoker conceived them, because it has to be said, vampires and and lore about vampires was around far before he was writing, but but his uh, specifically Dracula has really had this this um, long long life of imagination, especially in the West. It it is quite striking. At at one point when I was teaching at Georgia State University, I. I actually taught a class just on uh, vampire cinema, primarily because it was a sneaky way to teach the history of film, because there is no year, basically from 1922 until today, there's no year that we haven't seen some adaptation of Dracula on the screen. It is it is literally perennial. And I, I think it's a I think it's a, a compelling question. I think that Stoker, who's writing really at the cusp of the turn of the century, I think that he captures... One second. I think Stoker captures one of the um, central fascinations uh, presented by uh, Dracula, which is this being who does not have the same threshold of temporal understanding that ordinary mortals have, right? That the original uh, title or one of the original sort of subtitles of the, of the book is the undead, right? This is a being who does not experience death and therefore does not experience time the way we do, which means that history lives in an embodied form in the vampire. He does not face the the limits that that mortals face. And when we think about entertainment storytelling, right, what is our core anxiety? Our core anxiety is mortality, right? We are all going to die. We all uh, we all confront like finitude. But in the vampire, we have this entity that not only can he transcend death, this becomes really important in 20th century manifestations of the vampire, he defies aging, right? In the novel, as Dracula feeds, he goes from being this this weird, um, creepy, mustachioed old man with hairy palms to this dashing flaneur uh, who, who can mingle with with. British high society. If we look at stuff like True Blood or uh, the Twilight franchise, it's not just eternal life. It's also eternal youth. You can think about a movie like The Hunger in the 1980s, also dealing... Because as the 20th century has advanced, not only have we developed an intense dread... uh, We already had an intense dread of death. We've developed an intense dread of aging, so I think one of the things that makes vampires a la Dracula um, particularly fascinating is their ability to forestall death, to forestall time, to forestall aging. Um, this sort of idea of the, the vampire as a sex symbol, which really only comes in to vampire lore with Stoker's novel and some of the play adaptations that appeared uh, in the 1920s and then the cinematic adaptations. So I think part of it is the the vampire's command over time and ability to de- defy death and aging. I also think that that vampires have proved a malleable figure in terms of pop culture um, because there is an element of transformation persuasion, and even contagion, right? The vampire bites you 
and you become a vampire. Now, zombies bite you, and you become a zombie, but a zombie has no consciousness. A zombie is an appetite with legs. Uh, a werewolf destroys your humanity, right? You cease to be a human being, you become an animal. Both are frightening transformations, but both are dehumanizing. The vampire bites you, and you are transformed into something that is not less than human, but more than human, right? You still have supernatural powers, and you have all this, this cool stuff you can do. You can turn into smoke, you can fly, whatever, whatever, but you retain your personality, you retain your consciousness, you retain your youth, you retain your sexuality, or all of these things can be expanded. And I think that that is a, a potent notion because, and we see this in so many aspects of contemporary uh, popular culture especially, but really throughout the 20th century, right? This is, uh, we, we are a culture obsessed with self-transformation and self-mastery. And, you know, we have stories about people who discover that they're super-powered beings, right? Or we have stories uh, about people who, you know... Um, invent transformative technologies, stories uh, in which ordinary people become extraordinary. Well, the vampire is this great two-edged sword. It captures both the terror of being transformed into something that is other, but also the incredible allure of being transformed into something extraordinary. No one wants to become Frankenstein's monster. No one's standing in line for zombification, except for all the people who want to be extras on The Walking Dead. Right? But people actually desire to become vampires. Now, monsters had been figures of pathos before. Right? There is a distinct way in which uh, the hunchback is, is a figure that earns our sy sympathy. The creature uh, in Frankenstein is presented in very sympathetic terms. So monsters can be tragic... But the vampire can be heroic, or at least uh, represent a kind of ide ideal to which we aspire. And it's kind of messed up, but it's also kind of the secret to Dracula's success that he's by far the most interesting character in the book, and he is the character that, whether we're rooting for him or not, he has the most compelling claim on our attention. And so, you know, well, what is a movie star? A movie star is a being that transcends death and ordinariness, whose youth is preserved forever on celluloid or, you know, in, in, in other sort of pop culture forms. So really, I, I think we are a vampire nation in a lot of ways. Um, we've had previous conversations about how Stoker's vampire and Stoker's Dracula and, say, um, True Blood's vampires are very different. And, and so the what it means to be a vampire has gone through some transitions. So we've gone from sort of baby kidnapping in, in um, Stoker's Dracula to sparkling in the sunlight. Um, and and I wonder if you could vampires. sort of talk about... Where how we got from babies to sparklies? <laughs> yeah, and and even you know I think in some ways, True Blood is is the ridiculous but inevitable extreme to which you have to go, where somehow you have to imagine a bloodless vampire. Right, it's like a vegan werewolf. Somehow you're going to get to this place where you can you can consume. You can have the benefits of drinking blood without drinking actual blood. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question, and, I, and I, I think it has sort of two answers. First, in terms of transformation over time, if you want to take the temperature of pop culture, watch a vampire movie, and you will find at any given point some of what that moment in pop culture is thinking about, dealing with, afraid of, um, is going to come out 
through this very flexible figure of the vampire. So in the 1950s and in the 1960s, we're going to have kind of Cold War vampire stories that are, in some cases, apocalyptic or related to, instead of metaphysical contagion, um, radiation, um, and that focus on sort of paranoia and the anxiety of um, an enemy who can infiltrate and look just like you, right? At different periods, we'll see different kinds of, of vampires, right? So it, it becomes a really good barometer or, or metric of sort of pop culture preoccupations. What, what, what are the vampires doing today? And, and in particular, you know, it's interesting to look at religious sim- symbolism, Versus secularity, right? If we look at uh, Stoker's vampire, we still have a lot of talk of the devil. We have the talk of witchcraft. There is explicit magic invoked. Now, all of this is displaced onto that part of the world that from the perspective of an educated Dublin-born Londoner, right, he's going to project this onto the Carpathian Mountains, and that's where superstition and ghosts and also old school aristocrats, gypsies, serfs, right? All of those things get kind of lumped together and shoved off to, to that eastern part of Europe. Whereas uh, as we move into the 20th century, we, we find less and less sort of um, overtly Christian slash uh, Roman Catholic symbology associated. So, so part of it is, is as the audience and the culture creating the iterations of the Dracula story shifts this, this uh, singularly flexible monster figure shifts with them. So that that's that's sort of like that's sort of like one piece of the puzzle. I do think it is telling and important that over time the horror of the vampire is lessened and replaced by admiration or desire. So that by the time we get to, say, uh, the Buffyzoic period and the things that come after, vampires can be good, vampires can be bad, vampires can be romantic. They can still be monstrous and grotesque, but they can also be hot and, and benign. And that's a, that's a very distinct shift, because you're right. Lucy, when she falls under, uh, under Dracula's sway and becomes this spectral bloofer lady who is, who is, as you say, she is kidnapping children. A major Victorian anxiety, by the way, was, was the, the, the massacre and kidnapping of children. You can't get much more horrible than that. She's a baby eater. That is categorically bad. So even if Dracula and his vampires are fascinating and charismatic and alarmingly powerful in that novel, they are bad. Vampires are evil. But even the idea of evil becomes a little bit, by the mid-20th century, a little bit out of fashion. Now, one could say that the dismantling of the sacred profane barrier that the vampire transgresses and the dismantling of sort of the Judeo-Christian armature that was built around European vampire legends uh, that, that Stoker adapted for his book. And one could even say that the the creation of good and attractive and sexy and desirable and admirable vampires is evidence of a certain sickness of late modernity 
and contemporary culture. Like, oh my God, what have, what, what's happened to us? Right? Even, we, we even like vampires now. As, as, as every parent who's scratching their head over their kid's black lipstick and black fingernails and, and you know, vampire posters probably thinks at some point. It's like, where did we go wrong as a culture? I, I, don't, I don't usually go for, for arguments that are sort of that linear. What I do think it, it represents... Um, when we get to sort of of the the Buffy period, the Twilight period, contemporary vampires, um, our dread of the ordinary, our dread of aging, our dread of mortality, our terrible fear that we're just regular people living regular lives, that dread has grown so much more acute that feeding on human blood and risking eternal damnation, eh, that's a trade-off I'll make. If you look at Twilight, right, um, I don't necessarily recommend it. A lot of people have. If you look at, if you look at Twilight as a novel um, and, and then as a, as a franchise... It's the anti-Dracula. Dracula is all about running away. And when you see someone running towards Dracula, it's like watching someone running towards an oncoming train. Right? There is horror of the encounter with the vampire. When we realize that Dracula is going to move into that gated community in London, very near the Harker residence... We're horrified. It's like, oh, crap. That, that monstrosity is, is coming in. By the time we reach twilight, we're running towards the vampires. We've talked a lot about what happens in Western vampire culture. Um, maybe you could speak a little bit about what happens in Eastern vampire culture and other tr- other film traditions that aren't necessarily in the West. Pretty much every culture, because death is a universal human experience and the idea that something evil or supernatural can can sort of past death to to trouble the living we find uh vampire analogies all over the world blood drinking is is a very prominent trope uh, a reanimated corpse is a very prominent trope and this has really helped vampires have a soft landing western style vampires have a soft landing in other cultural contexts it is worth noting at least two major sort of global vampire tropes that that have a, a, a fairly prominent place in, in popular culture. First, um, Eastern European traditions of the vampire are very deeply rooted, and we will see uh, a lot of novels and a lot of films that deal with vampires in a way that's very compatible with Bram Stoker but not very compatible with American and British films of the latter half of the 20th century. So, so the, the vampire as a, a figure of um, religious profanation, right? This is a being that is damned. Obviously, that does not have a ton of resonance in a secularized world. If we look at some other contexts where uh, certain faith traditions have remained very strong, uh, Georgia, Russia, Turkey, we will find occasional vampire manifestations that are way closer to sort of that that Bram Stoker horror thing. We also have a very strong tradition of vampires in the Chinese-speaking world and in the Chinese-speaking cinema. Uh, these vampires, uh, at least in, in many of the films, these vampires are the product of bad feng shui, 
where you have not properly dealt with the burial, either in terms of location or timing or orientation. Um, sometimes these vampires uh, are, are presented not as a, a product of bad feng shui, but as the product of a, of a magical curse. And um, Chinese vampires hop, kind of like kangaroos. And this is really unfortunate because the result is that when a bunch of Chinese language films got packaged in the 1960s and early 1970s and sold to the West, and we didn't know what we were seeing, um, a lot of Western audiences responded as if this was humor. And there is a, a real disconnect between, between Chinese hopping vampire cinema and, um, you know, sort of how that was received here. We, we also will have a few really interesting examples from the 1970s when Chinese language filmmaking was kind of getting mashed up with European filmmaking. We have the emergence of guys like Bruce Lee as the first sort of um, Chinese-speaking action star. Uh, Hammer Films, which was a, a, a venerable British exploitation film production company that had revivified, again, Dracula in the 1950s, um, made, a, a, made a pact with a, a Chinese language studio called Golden Harvest, and we actually have a few mashup films where you can see sort of Eastern and Western vampire traditions getting, getting mingled. Um, interestingly, Chinese-style vampires are gradually giving way in Chinese-language cinema to Western-style vampires. So to bring this back to Emery a little bit, um, can you talk about what it means to have access to a collection like the John Moore Bram Stoker materials um, that's really rich in sort of first editions, but also the continuing vampire, specifically the continuing vampire tradition up to modern printed matter and um, also critical works about um, Bram Stoker and vampires um, in the age since, since he published Dracula. I'm clearly a fan. So you, you can, you can leaven my, my reaction with that knowledge to the extent you feel it's appropriate. I, I think the Moore collection is extraordinary and I think it's incredibly important. All facetiousness aside, anything that has, so captured so many imaginations and prompted so much investment of, of time and creative capital over so long a period is clearly important. And the, the more collections, not just depth, but also its breadth, really allows us an opportunity to... And I, I've seen only a fraction of this co collection and, and I'm already pretty blown away. Even just looking at book covers and looking at how a book cover or illustrations from an edition of Dracula from the turn of the 20th century to the, the representation of Dracula on the cover or in illustrations in the 21st century, that is in and of itself, that's a, a visual short course that much more eloquently answers the question you asked about how has this changed over time. So is it a cover like a romance novel with a bodice-ripping, handsome vampire, or, or is it some spectral and ghastly figure looming in the shadows? We, we can learn so much about this work's meaning by being able to look at, at instances across time. But I also think it is super easy to gallop away, especially when we're looking at something that has a big pop culture footprint. I think it's really easy to gallop away from uh, a crucial and fundamental truth, which is it had a beginning. This came from a person, a person who lived at a specific moment, a specific moment in the history of, of English language fiction, 
a specific moment in transatlantic culture, right? There is an American character in Dracula. Stoker had visited the United States. This is, this is a book that, that reflects an awareness of a particular map of the world. He is part of a community, a community that is in part a theatrical community, but also a literary community. And we, we can see that, you know, no one knows. Bram Stoker is like that, that great band that has the one hit that everyone knows by heart. And if they play anything new at a club, you get mad. Because like, all we know is Dracula. But Stoker produced other works. And those works are in dialogue with Dracula in ways that are illuminating but invisible to us. Because how do I get to look at his, at his correspondence? How do I get to look at his children's stories? How do I get to look at his other novels? So what, what a collection like John Moore's does and what the preservation and curation of that collection at a place like uh, the, the Rose Library does is it allows me to to look at uh, to look at Bram Stoker and to look at his iconic work in a way that captures both a kind of horizontal breadth that informs me about the genesis of that work and the world its author occupied, but it also allows me to look at it with a kind of temporal depth, and that. For scholars, for fans, for uh, specialists who are interested in things that may seem very tangential to Dracula, like, for instance, the geopolitics of the British Empire at the, at the turn of the 20th century, or uh, ideas about violence and sex in fiction at that moment and over time, this is the kind of collection that is a, is a kind of treasure trove for all of those people. Plus, the posters are fun. The posters are fun. As part of my position at Rose, I do all the cataloging of the, um, of the book collection, which is extensive. Um, we believe we have about 1,200 books um, by and about uh, Bram Stoker. And uh, I have to say that it is... Um, one thing that is very interesting about the collection is um, the ability to trace some of the relationships that Stoker had that were unexpected. Um, he knew Mark Twain. He um, corresponded, knew and corresponded with Buffalo Bill Cody. Um, so while there are many um, sort of British and European connections that he had, I am currently pretty fascinated with some of the American connections that he had and the Lyceum Theater, for whom Stoker was the business manager for 27 years um, or 28 years, uh, did tour the United States twice and provided the opportunity for him to meet people like Walt Whitman and, um, uh, again, Twain and other, other authors. And I think one thing that that really throws into light is that all of these people who we often think of as having different aesthetics, um, you think of what Twain was writing, what Whitman was writing, and what Stoker was writing. And yet all these people were in dialogue um, prior to Dracula um, making its entrance on the scene. So those sorts of um, relationships that he had with all sorts of other people in in different spheres that he moved in um, is completely fascinating. In addition to his 12 novels and three um, anthology of short stories and his completely exciting um, duties of the petty clerk of petty sessions, which is his first work that he wrote when he was still in Dublin, and that was his job as he was a a, a law clerk essentially. Um, so it's this evolution, just sort of within his own his own sphere of influence and and um, acquaintanceship, is pretty pretty fascinating. He wrote western short stories. He wrote cowboy stories. So I, I, I'm actually really glad you, you brought it up, including the, the duties of a petty clerk. I, I, I would like to, to mention that by the time that Stoker 
is writing. Um, I think Stoker is a completely modern writer. In that, you know, lots of completely modern writers have to do a stint writing stereo instructions or writing press releases or writing the technical manual for navigating the new tax code because that's what you, you got to keep the lights on. And he is a genre writer. He is a writer who is intensely interested in cultivating a popular readership. He's not interested in pleasing. This is not, um, which was the case, incidentally, at the beginning of the 19th century, where you've got a really small community of letters writing to each other. You've got authors writing to impress other authors who also happen to be the critics, and it's a small world. Stoker's world is a, a big world, and he is a, 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 uh, a writer, and I think his connection to the Lyceum Theater is super important, because I guarantee you, if you want to be a novelist today, you better be thinking, is what I'm writing easily turned into a Netflix television series that can run three seasons? Because that's where, that's where the energy is, right? It is not coincidental what winds up getting, getting published in, in YA fiction. It's not a, a surprise what, what winds up becoming you know, popular in, in beach read fiction because it's adaptable to other media. Stoker, while he is writing, is also working for one of the most popular actors in the world who has a global reputation and has plays written specifically for him to perform at his theater, which means, I would argue, Stoker, even though the movies don't exist, Stoker is creating an adaptation-friendly story. I think an analogy to Twain, though honestly, Mark Twain is a much more accomplished writer as a writer in many ways than Stoker could, could ever be said to be. Um, but I think Twain, uh, Twain's packaging of regional identities from various kinds of Americanness to various kinds of, of uh, foreignness. I think sto- that, that it has a, a strong analogy or a strong uh, reflection in how Stoker does the same thing. You're creating types. And why are you creating these types? Because you want a wide readership. He wants Dracula to appear in the United States, of course. That's why you put a Texan in it. So it's uh, also interesting to me that, of course, all of his books were published in the United States. Um, one thing that uh, Rose Library has in its holdings is a collection of yellowbacks. So yellowbacks were um, follow this readership that you were that you were addressing um, earlier, that sort of came about in the mid nineteenth century as as um, people are going to school a little bit longer. People are becoming more literate. There's a reading middle class. There's a meeting, reading working class. And so these yellowbacks, which are very cheap, uh, they were two shillings, which is uh, kind of pocket change, um, uh, really exploded um, just kind of just before Stoker um, was writing. So the, the 1870s and 1880s were very big for yellowbacks. Um, and they're called yellowbacks because they're bound in yellow paper with that are printed with um rather scandalous covers for the time. Lots of fainting women. Um, and, and man-eating uh, tigers. Yes, occasionally. And um, even Dracula. So Yellowback sort of petered out in the beginning of the 20th century um, by about 1910 or so. But in 1902, Dracula was published as a Yellowback. So um, the, the original editions were six shillings, which if you uh, you don't even have to know right the difference between six shillings and two shillings is you know a, a bit, little bit of money right especially if you're working class but um, so this really especially popular aimed at the working and middle class kind of um, edition came five years after the original um, publication 
And I think that um, is another sort of signal about how um, interested Stoker was in a popular readership, not a, an aristocratic one. So, so one of the inventions, I think you're absolutely right, and one of the, the most consequential inventions of the 19th century is the invention of the mass audience. The, the, if we look back even to the <clears throat> mid to late 1700s and into the early 1800s, um, the idea of the masses consuming certain kinds of entertainment or literature was problematic or even scandalous. Right? They understand that, oh, you don't want, you don't want the masses reading uh, reading Rousseau, they'll get dangerous ideas. You don't want the masses. And, 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 you know, we're still dealing with this. We haven't completely shaken this off, right? The assumption that anything the masses like must somehow be a little beneath us. There's a huge amount of sort of elitism and classism there. But really what, what happens over the course of the, the 1800s and... Uh, and is well underway by the time the 20th century begins, is, is this idea that you could have a mass audience that will be multi-class, multi-region, potentially multinational or multilingual, right? But that they are all kind of consuming the same thing. And one of the the, the sort of epochal transitions that we can see as we transition into the 20th century. And I think that the issue of Dracula as a yellowback is a perfect small example of this, is that what happens is the most successful cultural products of the elite are those that the mass chooses to embrace. And that by the 1920s, it's going to be stuff that's popular with mass audiences that is dictating the tastes of the elite. And this is an enormously consequential transformation, and we live with various aspects uh, or, or results of that transformation every day. But Stoker and Dracula are part of it. And you can find the tension in the book. It's it's a the book, if you've never read the novel, I, I heartily recommend it. It's both far better and far worse than you can imagine. Um it is a it's a mashup book. It's an epistolary novel, it's written in multiple voices. We have everything from like scraps of newspaper reportage. We've got bits of journals and diaries. We've got letters back and forth. It speaks with multiple voices, but it also speaks from multiple points of view on on the world. And it's got passages that are definitely there to be shocking in the way an old school graphic, uh, gothic, uh, not graphic, an old school gothic novel would be. Right, like we do have like moments of like, oh my God, did that person really just you know, are those babies? Um, and then we have these moments where we slip into a much older idiom, and we have these very elaborate and lovely sort of travel log passages, and we've got allusions to to both high culture and low culture. It really is standing right on that borderline between the world that we still occupy today and what came before. And, and that's what the vampire is, right? It's a border figure. Dead but not dead, live but not alive, monstrous and not monstrous. And that makes it really the perfect monster for our times. So, Eddie, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. This has been both enlightening and educational and um, entirely enjoyable. So thank you very much for joining us um, on the podcast today. Thank you. And, and I'm, when, when can we see this collection? Um, so the collection is uh, open. 
which means that researchers can see the materials that are available. Um, more material will be will come online um, as it is processed, both the archival collection and um, the cataloging. Uh, and it's important to note that most of this collection, um, that which is in the public domain and out of copyright, will be digitized and available sort of progressively over the next five or so years, because of course that's a, a complicated thing to do. Um, but uh, we certainly encourage anybody uh, who wants you to come and see the, the collection that's available. There are amazing things, both modern and historical, um, and uh, to come and, and celebrate our vampires with us. I'm, I am so grateful to you guys for bringing this collection in. I, and I, I, a shout out to, to John Moore. Thank heavens there are people who will do this with their lives and, and gather all these goodies together for us so that, that we, can, we can enjoy them. I, I, I always feel bad. It's like I'm going through somebody else's comic book collection. But, he, you know, he said, he said I could. <laughs> Community Conversations is produced by me, Lily Tarot, Nick Twimlow, and Jacob Chisenhall, who also edits the show. Music by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the continued support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library including our director, Jennifer Gunter King. Special thanks to Beth Shoemaker, Eddie Van Mueller, and the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. You can find Community Conversations on all your favorite podcast feeds. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on Rose Library's Instagram and other social media. And please share with your friends. Join us next month as curator Megan O'Neill and I talk art, community, and much more with Marie Watt and Chinupa Hansky-Luger, two artists whose works are currently on exhibition at Emory University's Carlos Museum.